Chapter Thirteen, Part A, of Aaron's Rod, by D. H. Lawrence. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Thirteen. Vai es innen gefällt. Part A. The fresh morning air comes startling after a central heated house. So Aaron found it. He felt himself dashing up the steps into the garden like a bird dashing out of a trap where it has been caught. That warm and luxurious house. Heaven bless us, we who want to save civilization. We had better make up our minds what of it we want to save. The colonel may be all well and good, but there is precious little colonel to a lot of woolly stuffing and poisonous rind. The gardens to Sir William's place were not imposing, and still rather war-neglected, but the pools of water lay smooth in the bright air, the flowers showed their colour beside the walks, many birds dashed about rather bewildered, having crossed the Alps in their migration southwards. Aaron noted with gratification a certain big magnificence, a certain reckless powerfulness in the still-blossoming, harsh-coloured autumn flowers. Distinct satisfaction he derived from it. He wandered upwards, up the succeeding flights of step, till he came to the upper rough hedge, and saw the wild copse on the hill-crest just above. Passing through a space in the hedge, he climbed the steep last bit of Sir William's Lane, it was a little vineyard, with small vines and yellowing leaves. Everywhere the place looked neglected, but as if man had just begun to tackle it once more. At the very top, by the wild hedge where spindle-berries hung pink, seats were placed, and from here the view was very beautiful. The hill dropped steep beneath him. A river wound on the near side of the city, crossed by a white bridge. The city lay close clustered ruddy on the plains, glittering in the clear air with its flat roofs and domes and square towers, strangely naked-seeming in the clear, clean air, and massive in the further nearness, snow-streaked mountains, the tiger-like Alps, tigers prowling between the north and the south, and this beautiful city lying nearest exposed. The snow-wind brushed her this morning like the icy whiskers of a tiger and clear in the light lay Novara, wide, fearless, violent Novara, beautiful the perfect air, the perfect and unblemished Alp sky, and like the first southern flower, Novara. Aaron sat watching in silence. Only the uneasy birds rustled. He watched the city and the winding river, the bridges and the imminent Alps. He was on the south side, on the other side of the time-barrier. His old sleepy English nature was startled in its sleep. He felt like a man who knows it is time to wake up, and who doesn't want to wake up, to face the responsibility of another sort of day. To open his darkest eyes and wake up to a new responsibility, wake up and enter on the responsibility of a new self in himself. Ach! The horror of responsibility! He had all his life slept and shelved the burden and he wanted to go on sleeping. It was so hateful to have to get a new grip on his own bowels, a new hard recklessness into his heart, a new and responsible consciousness into his mind and soul. He felt some finger prodding, prodding, prodding him awake out of the sleep of pathos and tragedy and spasmodic passion, and he wriggled, unwilling, almost unwilling, to undertake the new business. 
In fact, he ran away again. He gave a last look at the town and its white-fanged mountains, and descended through the garden, round the way of the kitchen garden, and garage, and stables, and pecking chickens, back to the house again. In the hall still no one. He went upstairs to the long lounge. There sat the rubicund, bald, boy-like colonel, reading the graphic. Aaron sat down opposite him and made a feeble attempt at conversation. But the colonel wasn't having any. It was evident he didn't care for the fellow. Mr. Aaron, that is. Aaron therefore dried up and began to sit him out with the aid of the queen. Came a servant, however, and said that the Signor Colonello was called up from the hospital on the telephone. The colonel once departed. Aaron fled again, this time out of the front doors and down the steep little park to the gates. Huge dogs and little dogs came bounding forward. Out of the lodge came the woman with the keys, smiling very pleasantly this morning. So he was in the street. The wide road led him inevitably to the big bridge, with the violent physical stone statue groups. Men and women were moving about, and he noticed for the first time the littleness and the momentaneousness of the Italians in the street. Perhaps it was the wideness of the bridge and the subsequent big open boulevard. But there it was. The people seemed little, upright, brisk figures moving in a certain isolation, like tiny figures on a big stage, and he felt himself moving in space between, all the northern coziness gone. He was set down with a space around him. Little trams flitted down the boulevard in the bright, sweet light. The barbers' shops were all busy, half the Novaris at that moment ambushed in lather, full in the public gaze. A shave is nothing if not a public act in the South. At the little outdoor tables of the cafes a very few drinkers sat before empty coffee cups. Most of the shops were shut. It was too soon after the war for life to be flowing very fast. The feeling of emptiness, of neglect, of lack of supplies was evident everywhere. Aaron strolled on, surprised himself at his gallant feeling of liberty, a feeling of bravado and almost swaggering carelessness, which is Italy's best gift to an Englishman. He had crossed the dividing line, and the values of life, though ostensibly and verbally the same, were dynamically different. Alas, however, the verbal and the ostensible, the accursed mechanical ideal gains day by day over the spontaneous life dynamic so that Italy becomes as idea-bound and as automatic as England. Just a business proposition. Coming to the station, he went inside. There he saw a money-changing window which was open, so he planked down a five-pound note and got two hundred and ten lire. Here was a start. At a bookstall he saw a man buy a big timetable with a large railway map in it. He immediately bought the same. Then he retired to a corner to get his whereabouts. In the morning he must move. Where? He looked on the map. The map seemed to offer two alternatives, Milan and Genoa. He chose Milan, because of its musical associations and its cathedral. Milano, then. Strolling and still strolling, he found the boards announcing arrivals and departures. As far as he could make out, the train for Milan left at nine o'clock in the morning. So much achieved, he left the big desolating caravansary of the station. Soldiers were camped in every corner, lying in heaps asleep. 
in their grey-green uniform he was surprised at their sturdy limbs and uniformly short stature for the first time he saw the cock-feathers of the bersaglieri there seemed a new life-quality everywhere many worlds not one world but alas the one world triumphing more and more over the many worlds the big oneness swallowing up the many small diversities in its insatiable gnawing appetite leaving a dreary sameness throughout the world that means at last complete sterility aaron however was too new to the strangeness he had no eye for the horrible sameness that was spreading like a disease over italy from england and the north he plunged into the space in front of the station and took a new wide boulevard to his surprise he ran towards a big and over-animated statue that stood resolutely with its back to the magnificent snow-domes of the wild alps wolves in the street could not have startled him more than those magnificent fierce gleaming mountains of snow at the street end beyond the statue he stood and wondered and never thought to look who the gentleman was then he turned right round and began to walk home luncheon was at one o'clock it was half-past twelve when he rang at the lodge gates he climbed through the leaves of the little park on a side path rather reluctantly towards the house in the hall lady franks was discussing with arthur a fat pekinese who did not seem very well she was sure the servants did not obey her orders concerning the pekinese bitch arthur who was more than indifferent assured her they did but she seemed to think that the whole of the male human race was in league against the miserable specimen of a she-dog she almost cried thinking her queenie might by some chance meet with perhaps a harsh word or look queenie apparently fattened on the secret detestation of the male human species i can't bear to think that a dumb creature might be ill-treated she said to aaron thank goodness the italians are better than they used to be are they better than they used to be oh much they have learnt it from us she then inquired if her guest had slept and if he were rested from his journey aaron into whose face the faint snow wind and the sun had brought a glow replied that he had slept well and enjoyed the morning thank you whereupon lady franks knitted her brows and said sir william had had such a bad night he had not been able to sleep and had got up and walked about the room the least excitement and she dreaded a breakdown he must have absolute calm and restfulness there's one for you in your jawing last night aaron my boy said our hero to himself i thought sir william seemed so full of life and energy he said aloud ah did you no he wants to be but he can't do it he's very much upset this morning i have been very anxious about him i am sorry to hear that lady franks departed to some duty aaron sat alone before the fire it was a huge fireplace like a dark chamber shut in by tall finely wrought iron gates behind these iron gates of curly iron the logs burned and flickered like leopards slumbering and lifting their heads within their cage aaron wondered who was the keeper of the savage element who it was that would open the iron grill and throw on another log like meat to the lions to be sure the fire was only to be looked at like wild beasts in the zoo for the house was warm from roof to floor it was strange to see the blue air of sunlight outside the yellow-edged leaves falling in the wind the red flowers shaking the gong sounded softly through the house 
and the colonel came in heartily from the garden, but did not speak to Aaron. The major and his wife came pallid down the stairs. Lady Franks appeared, talking domestic secretarial business with the wife of Arthur. Arthur, well-nourished and half at home, called down the stairs, and then Sir William descended, old and frail now in the morning, shaken. Still he approached Aaron heartily, and asked him how he did, and how he had spent his morning. The old man who had made a fortune, how he expected homage, and how he got it. Homage, like most things, is just a convention and a social trick. Aaron found himself paying homage, too, to the old man who had made a fortune, but also exacting a certain deference in return from the old man who had made a fortune. Getting it, too. On what grounds? Youth, maybe. But mostly scorn for fortunes and fortune-making. Did he scorn fortunes and fortune-making? Not he, otherwise whence his homage for the old man with much money. Aaron, like everybody else, was rather paralyzed by a million sterling. Personified in one old man, paralyzed, fascinated, overcome, all those three. Only having no final control over his own make-up, he could not drive himself into the money-making or even into the money-having habit. And he had just wit enough to threaten Sir William's golden king with his own ivory queen and knights of willful life and Sir William quaked. "'Well, and how have you spent your morning?' asked the host. "'I went first to look at the garden. Ah, not much to see now. They have been beautiful with flowers once. But for two and a half years the house has been a hospital for officers, and even tents in the park and garden, as many as two hundred wounded and sick at a time. We are only just returning to civil life, and flowers need time. Yes. Yes.' British officers, for two and a half years. But did you go up now to the Belvedere? To the top, where the vines are? I never expected the mountains. You never expected the mountains? Pray, why not? They are always there. But I was never there before. I never knew they were there, round the town. I didn't expect it like that. Ah, so you found our city impressive? Very. Ah, very. A new world to me. I feel I've come out of myself. Yes, it is a wonderful sight, a wonderful sight. But you have not been into the town? Yes, I saw the men being shaved, and all the soldiers at the station, and a statue, and mountains behind it. Oh, I've had a full morning. A full morning. That is good, that is good. The old man looked again at the younger man, and seemed to get life from him, to live in him vicariously. Come, said the hostess. Luncheon. Aaron sat again on his hostess's left hand. The colonel was more affable now it was meal-time. Sir William was again in good humour, chaffing the young ladies with an old man's gallantry. But now he insisted on drawing Aaron into the play, and Aaron did not want to be drawn. He did not one bit want to chaffer gallantries with the young women. Between him and Sir William there was a curious rivalry, unconscious on both sides. The old knight had devoted an energetic, adventurous, almost an artistic nature to the making of his fortune and the developing of later philanthropies. He had no children. Aaron was devoting a similar nature to anything but fortune-making and philanthropy. The one held life to be a storing up of produce and a conservation of energy. The other held life to be a sheer spending of energy and a storing up of nothing but experience. There they were, 
in opposition, the old man and the young. Sir William kept calling Aaron into the chaffer at the other end of the table, and Aaron kept on refusing to join. He hated long-distance answers anyhow, and in his mood, of the moment, he hated the young women. He had a conversation with Arthur about statues, concerning which Aaron knew nothing, and Arthur less than nothing. Then Lady Franks turned the conversation to the soldiers at the station, and said how Sir William had equipped the rest huts for the Italian privates near the station, but that such was the jealousy in spite of the Italian Red Cross, or some such body locally, that Sir William's huts had been left empty, standing unused, while the men had slept on the stone floor of the station, night after night, in icy winter. There was evidently much bitter feeling as a result of Sir William's philanthropy. Apparently even the honey of lavish charity had turned to gall in the Italian mouth, at least the official mouth, which gall had been spat back at the charitable, much to his pain. It is, in truth, a difficult world, particularly when you have another race to deal with, after which came the beef olives. Oh, said Lady Franks, I had such a dreadful dream last night. Such a dreadful dream. It upset me so much. I have not been able to get over it all day. What was it? said Aaron. Tell it and break it. Why, said his hostess, I dreamed I was asleep in my room, just as I actually was, and that it was night, yet with a terrible sort of light, like the dead light before dawn, so that one could see, and my maid, Giuseppina, came running into my room, saying, Signora, Signora, si alza, subito, Signora, vengono su. And I said, Ci? Ci sono, ci vengono, ci. I novarisi. Novarisi. Vengono su. Vengono chi. I got out of bed and went to the window. And there they were in the dead light, rushing up to the house, through the trees. It was so awful, I haven't been able to forget it all day. Tell me what the words are in English, said Aaron. Why, she said, get up, get up, the Novarisi, the people of Novara, are coming up. Vengono su, they are coming up. The Novara people, work people. I can't forget it. It was so real. I can't believe it didn't actually happen. Ah, said Aaron, it will never happen. I know that whatever one foresees and feels has happened never happens in real life. It sort of works itself off through the imagining of it. Well, it was almost more real to me than real life, said his hostess. Then it will never happen in real life, he said. Luncheon passed, and coffee. The party began to disperse. Lady Franks to answer more letters, with the aid of Arthur's wife, some to sleep, some to walk. Aaron escaped once more through the big gates. This time he turned his back on the town and the mountains, and climbed up the hill into the country. So he went between the banks and the bushes, watching for unknown plants and shrubs, hearing the birds, feeling the influence of a new soil. At the top of the hill he saw over into vineyards, and a new strange valley with a winding river, and jumbled and tangled hills, strange wild country so near the town. It seemed to keep an almost virgin wildness, yet he saw the white houses dotted here and there. Just below him was a peasant house, and on a little loggia in the sun two peasants in white shirt-sleeves and black Sunday suits were sitting drinking wine and talking, talking. 
peasant youths in black hats, their sweethearts in dark stuffed dresses, wearing no hat but a black silk or a white silk scarf, passed slowly along the little road just below the ridge. None looked up to see Aaron sitting there alone. From some hidden place somebody was playing an accordion, a jerky sound in the still afternoon, and away beyond lay the unchanging mysterious valley and the infolding mysterious hills of Italy. Returning back again another way, he lost himself at the foot of the hill in new and deserted suburb streets, unfinished streets of seemingly unfinished houses, then a sort of boulevard where bourgeois families were taking the Sunday afternoon walk. Stout papas, stout pallid mamas in rather cheap black fur, little girls very much dressed, and long lads in short socks and round sailor caps, ribbons fluttering. Alien, they felt. Alien, alien, as a bourgeois crowd always does, but particularly a foreign Sunday-best bourgeois crowd. Aaron wandered and wandered, finding the tram terminus and trying blank, unfinished street after street. He had a great disinclination to ask his way. At last he recognized the bank and the little stream of water that ran along the street side, so he was back in time for tea. A hospital nurse was there, and two other strange women. Arthur played the part of host. Sir William came in from a walk with the dogs, but retired to his room without taking tea. And so the evening fell. Aaron sat in the hall at some distance from the fire which burned behind its wrought-iron gates. He was tired now with all his impressions, and dispirited. He thought of his wife and children at home, of the church-bells ringing so loudly across the field beyond his garden end, of the dark-clad people trailing unevenly across the two paths, one to the left, one to the right, forking their way towards the houses of the town, to church or to chapel, mostly to chapel. At this hour he himself would be dressed in his best clothes, tying his bow, ready to go out to the public-house, and his wife would be resenting his holiday departure, whilst she was left fastened to the children. Rather tired and dispirited in this alien place, he wondered if he wished himself back, but the moment he actually realized himself at home, and felt the tension of barrenness which it meant, felt the curious and deadly opposition of his wife's will against his own nature, the almost nauseating ache which it amounted to, he pulled himself together and rejoiced again in his new surroundings. Her will, her will, her terrible, implacable, cunning will. What was there in the female will so diabolical, he asked himself, that it could press like a flat sheet of iron against a man all the time? The female will. He realized now that he had a horror of it. It was flat and inflexible as a sheet of iron, but also it was cunning as a snake that could sing treacherous songs. Of two people at a deadlock, he always reminded himself, there is not only one wholly at fault. Both must be at fault. Having a detached and logical soul, he never let himself forget this truth. Take Lottie. He had loved her. He had never loved any other woman. If he had had his other affairs, it was out of spite or defiance or curiosity. They meant nothing. He and Lottie had loved one another, and the love had developed almost at once into a kind of combat. Lottie had been the only child of headstrong, well-to-do parents. He also had been the only child of his widowed mother. Well, then, both he and Lottie 
had been brought up to consider themselves the first in whatsoever company they found themselves. During the early months of the marriage he had, of course, continued the spoiling of the young wife. But this never altered the fact that, by his very nature, he considered himself as first and almost as single in any relationship. First and single, he felt, and as such he bore himself. It had taken him years to realize that Lottie also felt herself first and single. Under all her whimsicalness and fretfulness was a conviction as firm as steel that she, as woman, was the center of creation. The man was but an adjunct. She, as woman, and particularly as mother, was the first great source of life and being, and also of culture. The man was but the instrument and the finisher. She was the source and the substance. Sure enough, Lottie had never formulated this belief inside herself, but it was formulated for her in the whole world. It is the substantial and professed belief of the whole white world. She did but inevitably represent what the whole world around her asserted, the life-centrality of woman. Woman, the life-bearer, the life-source. Nearly all men agree to the assertion, practically all men, even while demanding their selfish rights as superior males, tacitly agree to the fact of the sacred life-bearing priority of woman. Tacitly, they yield the worship to that which is female. Tacitly, they conspire to agree that all that is productive, all that is fine and sensitive and most essentially noble, is woman. This, in their productive and religious souls, they believe and however much they react against the belief loathing their women running to prostitutes or beer or anything out of reaction against this great and ignominious dogma of the sacred priority of women still they do but profane the god they worship profaning woman they still inversely worship her but in aaron was planted another seed he did not know it he started off on the good old track of worshipping his woman while his heart was honest and profaning her in his fits of temper and revolt. But he made a bad show. Born in him was a spirit which could not worship woman. No, and would not. Could not and would not. It was not in him. In early days he tried to pretend it was in him, but through his plaintive and homage-rendering love of a young husband was always for the woman discernible the arrogance of self-unyielding male. He never yielded himself never. All his mad loving was only an effort. Afterwards he was as devilishly unyielded as ever, and it was an instinct in her that her man must yield to her, so that she should envelop him yielding, in her all-beneficent love. She was quite sure that her love was all-beneficent, of this no shadow of doubt. She was quite sure that the highest her man could ever know or ever reach was to be perfectly enveloped in her all-beneficent love. This was her idea of marriage. She held it not as an idea, but as a profound impulse and instinct, an instinct developed in her by the age in which she lived. All that was deepest and most sacred in her feeling centered in this belief. And he outraged her. Oh, from the first day and the first night, she felt he outraged her. True, for some time she had been taken in by his manifest love. But though you can deceive the conscious mind, you can never deceive the deep unconscious instinct. 
she could never understand whence arose in her almost from the first days of marriage with him her terrible paroxysms of hatred for him she was in love with him ah heaven knew how maddeningly she was in love with him a certain unseizable beauty that was his and which fascinated her as a snake a bird but in revulsion how she hated him how she abhorred him how she despised and shuddered at him he seemed a horrible thing to her and then again oh god the agony of her desire for him the agony of her long long desire for him he was a passionate lover he gave her ostensibly all she asked for he withheld from her nothing no experience no degree of intimacy she was his initiate or he hers End of chapter 13 part a